Welcome to Coffee Talk with Linda Davis. I'm Linda Davis. Before we dive into God's Word, just a little bit about myself. I love Jesus. I love coffee. And I love sharing keys to abundant living. So, if you haven't already grabbed a cup of coffee, go grab a cup and join me today as we talk about not missing the season of all things new not missing the appointed time of all things new and that god makes all things new as i was spending time with the lord this morning i began to think about how we are already in june we are already pretty much in the month that ends half of this year we're halfway through this year and as i begin to ponder that the thought came into my mind that he makes all things new, all things, right? The Bible says that, it says that all things are possible. It says that he will give us a whole new heart, not a portion. He's not a portion God. He's not a limited God. He won't move in one area of our life and neglect another area of our life. He's not a limited God. We have to shift our thinking. Sometimes I think when God does one thing for us, say we're waiting on three and he does one, and then we're very thankful for the one, but our focus shifts to the other two. And I think as, as humans, I guess, we begin to feel guilty that we're expecting God to move on the other two because we have the one, if that makes sense. But no, he wants to do exceedingly. He wants to do abundantly. We don't have to say, oh, that's enough. You've done enough. I'll take the one blessing, the one answer to prayer, and I'll still struggle through these two over here. That's not how God functions. That's how our mind functions sometimes. But we have to shift to, he's an all things God, all things are possible, and he makes all things new, right? James chapter one tells us we go through stuff so we will have what? Nothing lacking, nothing missing, completely whole, completely fulfilled in the Lord. So we have to remember he's not a limited God. He's limitless. He doesn't want to heal just one person. He wants to heal all people for his glory. He's actually, interestingly, he's not really... If you look at the Bible and you look at the different, I hate to say stories, we read them as stories, but they're facts of actual events. It's how I would probably put it, account, an account of an actual event that took place. As we, as we read about these accounts, God always took a healing and used it for his kingdom glory. We're seeking healing to relieve us of our pain, to give us some kind of relief, for the suffering to stop. And God says, I'll do that over there. I will stop your suffering because I'm a gracious God. But that's not where I want that to remain. That's not my only reasoning for my healing power, right? And all through the New Testament, signs and wonders drew people in. It was for bigger, greater purposes. We have to shift our focus to that. And when God has moved in our life, we have to be willing at any cost to allow what he's done to be exposed for all to see so that God can do greater 
even greater than what he's just done in and with us. So I hope that make I hope that's making sense. So going back to he's not a limited God, he's limitless. He is going to do what he says he will do. The only way God is limited is if we are limiting him. He doesn't waver in his promises. He's not a man that he would even think about lying. So then what? Why do things seem stagnant sometimes? Why does it feel like we're waiting forever for things to take place? Where do we go with that when it seems stagnant? What? When it seems worse, when we're believing for healing, when we're believing for God to move, uh, not just physically, but maybe financially, maybe relationally. What? When it seems to get worse, what happens? Are we we spending time getting distracted by something or someone else doing something for us that truthfully only God can do for us? Are we focused on that? Or are we focusing on God? Has he asked us to do something we're not doing that will um, activate the healing, activate the finances, uh, bring restoration? Our obedience and our response to direction by the Lord always produces. It always produces. And we don't like to take the onus on ourselves sometimes and humbly admit that maybe I wouldn't be in this situation if I had been more obedient to God and his word. If I had responded quickly, if I had not hesitated, if I had not doubted, all those things come at a cost. And we say, but God's mercy, and he is, and he'll come back around. And so as, as I was pondering all that this morning, I thought about the man at the pool at Bethesda. And so I want us to go there and do a little bit of dissecting of what actually took place here. Because there's so much in it. And there's so much partnership, I'll even say, between movement of the people and the power of God. It's a partnership. So we have this situation that's going on and it's in John chapter five and it starts obviously right in the very beginning, right? And we, so we have, we have, it says after these things, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. So let's just go through that a little bit. So it is the feast of the Jews, right? That's, so that is the Passover, the most celebrated feast. That's, that's what's taking place here. It's a big deal to keep this short. It's a big deal, right? And so... Jesus is headed there, though residing in Galilee, he's going up to Jerusalem in the feast. It was actually an ordinance of God, very important feast. So, and it's under a lot of law, we're under a lot of law here, which is going to come into play later. So the place that we're talking about in verse two, right? It talks about the pool at Bethesda. So it's in Jerusalem, it's at, it says the sheep gate, it's at the sheep market. So this is obviously, right, where the sheep 
are kept. And then even probably sold, actually, now that I think about it. And so it's called Bethesda, which actually means the house of mercy. So the lame, the sick, the blind, I mean, very sick. I think they, I think they give these descriptions of who's there, who lay a multitude of sick. You, you know, they're just not, not feeling good. They're blind, they're lame, they're withered hand, they're, they're crippled. They have significant sickness in their lives. And so the health of Bethesda is called the house of mercy. So, right, God, has, God is merciful. He has, of course, mercy on the sick, right? We have these places now, they're called hospitals, really, right? That's where the sick go, waiting to be healed. And so this was frequently visited by the sick, this pool of Bethesda. These are the least able to help themselves that come here and that are here waiting on the waters to be stirred. They're they're actually there out of obedience. They've heard. They're actually there out of faith. They've heard something happens. And I mean... You know, angels have power. They are sent by God. They don't have power of their own. But when God sends them, they carry God's power. And if an angel shows up near water, it's going to get stirred. You could even call it troubled waters. It's going to look like there's trouble in the water. Because angels are powerful because they carry the power of God. So moving on to verse 4, it says, For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons... I mean, there just are times and seasons that God is moving on our behalf. And we have to be ready to move. We have to be alert. We have to be watching, just like, you know, the whole parable of the 10 virgins. We have to be prepared. And when God shows up in that season that he's going to show up, we have to be. It wasn't a certain date every year that the angel came down and stirred the waters. It says seasons. The angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, whoever then first stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. The first one to get in the water. So in one sense, the one that was the most alert, most in tune, paying the most attention and got in that water immediately with no hesitation was cured, was healed and made whole. And those that lingered, those that showed up late, those that hesitated, those that came in afterwards, they missed out. And that's just the truth of the matter. They missed out on it. So we have to not miss our season. We have to get into a se- We have to make sure we do not get into a season of laziness, of frustration, of looking elsewhere of hesitation because seasons are only for moments. They pass. And then sometimes they may not be for a significant amount of time. That's the thing about a season passing. You don't know when it's going to show up again. Don't miss out on the fact that he's doing a new thing when he's doing a new thing. So let's jump forward to verse five. A man was there who had been ill for 30 years. Eight years. 38 years. That's a long time. This man is already desperate, no doubt. But Jesus has a different plan for him. 
It's his season. Jesus takes notice of him and says, wait a minute, something's got to shift in this guy's life. And so we go down to verse six. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew, Jesus knew, and that's the thing, we can't, Jesus knows how long it's been for you. Sometimes all of us think that the Lord does not understand how long we've been waiting, does not understand our timeline, does not understand our deadlines. He knows. He just simply knows. So here we have it in verse six, Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition. And he says to him, do you wish to get well? So really, let's not miss the fact that nobody told Jesus this man had been there. He knew he had been there a long time. So why is he asking him the question, do you wish to get well? He, when Jesus, let's be honest, he already knows the answer to this question. Just like he already knows the answer to the question he asks you. There's two things going on there. He wants to show you the truth in your heart and he also wants you to make a proclamation of what it is you want him to do on your behalf. And that's powerful right there. We need to proclaim what we desire the Lord to do. Ask and you shall receive. Genesis chapter one, I mean, just go and highlight He said, he said, he said, he said, everything was said, proclaimed before it existed. So he's asking the man here, do you wish to be well? And I want to point this out just a little bit. So when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, right, he's coming for the feast that we already talked about. He doesn't go up to the palace or the temple. He doesn't go to the fancy places. Where does he go? He goes to where the destitute are where the distraught are, that's where he goes, to where the need is real and deep and the people are desperate. That's where he goes. So Jesus sees the man. He asks the man. He singles him out from all the rest. Sometimes God's going to single you out and be prepared in that moment to expose your heart, be transparent with the Lord, share the truth with him of your heart, And then whatever he says to do, act on it, regardless of what it will cost you. There will be a cost, so regardless of what it costs you. So kind of an interesting thing here when he asks him, right? Obviously, the man wants to be healed. That's why he's laying there. He probably had somebody put him there because he wasn't even well enough to get up when the waters were stirred and get in the water. So he had somebody place him there. There's so much going on here. It's just crazy, all the different things that are going on taking place here. So he gets somebody to bring him there. And Jesus asks him, do you wish to be made well? Right? Uh, of course he does. He, he basically, he doesn't even answer the question. He doesn't answer him and say yes or no. He basically says to him, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. And I feel like I used to read this like, geez, just given a bunch of excuses. It's all the, this man's just, he's just given Jesus an excuse. I really believe he's trying to really share his heart with the Lord. I want my healing. I desire and am so desperate to be healed, but I can't get to the water. And you know what? Not even one person will help me. 
Don't miss that. Not even one person will help this man who's been there for 38 years. So he's not a young man. And everybody's just stepping over him, more concerned with themselves, more concerned. Not one younger person would stop and say, you know what? You're worse off than I am. Let me get you to the water and I'll wait for the next stirring. How sacrificial would that have been? Like we can't miss this man had nobody to help him. He couldn't help himself and no one else would help him. And that's what he's letting Jesus know here. He's like, I have nobody to get me into that pool. He doesn't want Jesus to think he's been careless. He's been lazy. He's been neglectful. He's concerned that he's going to think all those things of him. It's not because of a lack of my will or a lack of intent. It's a lack of a friend to help me get to the water. That's pretty powerful there because I can't do it myself. Sometimes there's things we can't do for ourselves, just like the friends that lowered the lame man on the mat into the room, right? Through the roof and Jesus healed him. It was their faith. So this man, opposite of that, he doesn't have anybody step up. But yet Jesus' eyes land on him. That's pretty powerful. So how does Jesus respond to that? Well, he responds in compassion. And he basically tells him, get up. Pick up your pallet and walk. Basically your bed. Like, you're good. Do something now. And what is this man going to do? He could have actually responded kind of like Moses did several times to God. God told him to, he gave excuse after excuse. This man only gave one excuse and it was a very truthful excuse. But when Jesus overrode that excuse and said, oh, no, I'll, we're done. You're healed. Get up and walk. When you get up and walk, actually the, the healing had already manifested in his body. And I'm sure he felt something. I'm sure he felt the fire of God hit his body. Something inside that man caused him to say, oh yeah, I'm healed. I'm getting up. I'm picking up my mat. He didn't have to go through any strength building therapy, nothing. Like he was fully healed, fully strengthened at the words of get up, pick up your mat and walk. Now it's on the man. Now what is he going to do? He could have responded an excuse and sat right there on his mat, never moved and never been healed. But of course, we all probably very familiar with the story. He didn't do that. He picked up his mat. And don't miss this. Jesus never leads him to the water. He doesn't need to. He's Jesus. He's the one carrying the power. He never tells the man, get up, you're healed, go to the water. No, he tells him to pick up his mat and simply walk. I'm your source. That water is not even your source anyways. Now, your faith and your obedience to try and get to the water tells me your heart and through that you're healed. Obviously, because that's according to history, according to the account of the word of God. People did that and stepped into that water that had been, it was a symbol that I'm moving and I'm healing. And do you want it? And are you willing to move immediately? So now this man, he doesn't go into the waters. He's not told to go into the waters, but he immediately steps up. He's immediately strengthened. He's immediately to carry his mat and basically his bed. Like one minute he can't move. The next minute he's standing up holding his bed, which wasn't just like a little towel probably that we would roll under our arm. 
It was something sturdy enough to sleep in. He had the bodily strength to do that. And so now, and don't miss, Jesus tells him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Carry your mat with you while you're walking. Now remember, and we're going to get into this. I think this is going to be a part two on this. <laughs> okay. When, when we have responded to the stirring waters, then we are empowered to stir waters. I don't want you to miss that. We have been given that power. Our faith has been increased in that moment as we have responded to the word of the Lord. Remember, if you go all the way back to verse one, it's the feast of the Jews. <laughs> it's Sabbath. And this man walking around town, basically carrying his mat, like that's going to cause some stuff to get stirred up. That's going to cause some heads to turn. That's going to cause people to be worked up because, so what is he doing in this moment? He's making a proclamation. I've been healed. And I was told to pick up my mat and walk. And I would rather obey the voice of the Lord than any religious law that's been established, any tradition that's going to cause me to lose my healing or not receive my healing, to lose my blessing or not receive my blessing because I was more concerned about man than I was the word of the Lord. Once we've stepped into the stirred waters, once we've responded in obedience and in faith, we're now equipped to stir the waters for signs and wonders to take place through our obedience and through our faith. And we're going to talk about that next week. Tune in. We're going to talk about being equipped to now stir the waters. And when you respond in obedience and faith, that's going to stir others. Things are going to take place. People are going to come at you. They're going to question it. It's going to increase in your life. So be sure to tune in next week as we talk about responding in obedience and faith has now equipped you to stir the waters. 